The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s... She looked like a million bucks. ...scams a bunch of famous athletes out of untold fortunes... Nearly $10 million was all gone. It's just unbelievable. Hide your money in your old rich men, because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Family Secrets is a production of iHeartRadio. It was the same year, my eighth grade year, when closed curtains became a hard and fast rule in our house. Around that time, I was instructed to never answer the door, even if I knew who it was. After the mail went missing and the phone got shut off, a vulnerability that wasn't there before seemed to permeate our daily lives. Anyone and anything outside those drapes, those limestone walls, possessed intentions we can never be sure of. We can only trust one another. My dad, becoming increasingly convinced mom was right that someone was out to get us, entrusted me with keeping the property safe. He started saying things like, if someone crosses the gate, they're yours. You have to protect the property. At 14, I became hypervigilant, always on guard. At the end of each day, my neck and shoulders would ache from fatigue, from long hours of keen attentiveness. I heard each passing car search the eyes of every strange and familiar face at the store. That my no-nonsense father and brazen Spitfire mother had failed to protect us only convinced me that they needed my help. Paranoia became an obligation, a twisted kind of duty to my family. That's Axton Betts Hamilton, reading from her book, The Less People Know About Us, a memoir of betrayal, family secrets, and stolen identity. Stolen identity. I can't imagine anything more unsettling than having your very sense of selfhood, the thing we all think we can count on, stolen? The financial ruin is just the tip of the iceberg. This is primal, terrifying, personal stuff. To have your identity stolen is to be handpicked by an invisible, malicious force, singled out for ruin. 
That's what happened to Axton. From the time she was a kid, she was told that her parents were being targeted by a mysterious identity thief. Years later, she found out that she had been targeted too, and that the thief was the last person she possibly could have imagined. I'm Danny Shapiro, and this is Family Secrets. The secrets that are kept from us, the secrets we keep from others, and the secrets we keep from ourselves. How old were they when they had you? Mom was 25 going on 26, and dad was 27 going on 28. Where I grew up, to this day, my dad would even say that they were considered older parents. You know, by today's standards, I think around 30 is the average for having, you know, your first child. But yeah, back then, they were considered older parents. Tell me a bit about your dad. What was he like? Dad always took me outside. See, Mom was always inside. You know, she, she was in the house. She was always watching soap operas, which was a little kid for me insane. Dad was the one who was outside. He took care of all the outside stuff. And we had a woods on our property, and... When I was really little, Dad wanted to build trails in the woods, and so we cut trails in the woods. And we dug a pond in the woods, you know, with the tractor that he bought. And I was always with Dad. The the animals were Dad's thing. They weren't Mom's thing. So I was always out in the barn with Dad. Mom was never one to go out in the barn and do work. What were the first hints that there was something out of control financially going on? Like, how did that first present itself to you? My parents' mail started uh, coming up missing. And then over time, letters from my friends and pen pals were coming up missing. And at some point along the way, in the discussions of all this missing mail, mom said that that's what people do when they steal your identity. And she said that her identity and dad's identity have been stolen. One of the things that's striking to me is that identity theft, which is something that there's a lot of media focus on now and there's a lot of awareness of, that back then there might not have been nearly that kind of awareness, right? Oh, there was zero awareness, you know, at a public level on identity theft. Nobody knew about it back then. Um, in fact, consumers were not considered victims of identity theft until 1998 with the passage of the Identity Theft and Assumption Deterrence Act. And this was all starting in 1993-1994. So, the, you know, the, the mail, I think, probably started going missing at some point in 1993, and then the words identity theft became more and more common in our house in 1994. I'm sure nobody else was talking about identity just back then, you know, the, you know, the way that we were. The creeping paranoia builds and builds until no one can be trusted. The family grows more isolated. They buy an early cellular phone. This was back in the days when cell phones were gigantic and expensive. The phone, so big it had its own special stool in their kitchen, is only to be used for emergencies. Axton's mom says that the person responsible for all this must be someone intimate with them, 
someone who knows them very well, a close friend, or a family member. So better not to speak with anyone at all. We didn't tell people why we weren't communicating with them anymore. We just withdrew from them and didn't encourage any contact. And of course, you don't have a landline phone back in the mid-90s. Hard to get a hold of someone. So it was easy for those relationships to fade away. And during that time, one of the things that my parents said was, you know, okay, this is someone who's really close to us, so you know, when you're home alone, don't answer the door even if you know who it is. Or if someone goes through the gate, so we had a gate separating our front yard from our backyard. And that was a rule as well, that if someone goes through the gate, you have to take care of it. Because there's no one to call. You know, it's up to you to defend the property. You know, it's up to you to defend yourself from any intruder. And it got to the point where I was maybe 16 and 17, where mom didn't want me going back into the woods by myself. I wasn't allowed in the front yard because she said that people drove up and down the highway in front of our house looking to snatch babies, including teenagers. So apparently, you know, there were all these baby snatchers who were just lurking, waiting to snatch me. How did this affect you during those years? I mean, that is such an incredibly isolating way to be, you know, a middle schooler and then a teenager. Well, I thought I was doing the right thing. By not answering the door, by not developing friendships, by just wanting to be left alone, I thought I was helping defend our family from the identity thief. So I, I had a, you know, like a warped perception of what I was doing. I was angry. I didn't understand why someone was doing this to us. And I wanted to know why. What made us good targets? Why did we have to live this way? And nobody could answer that. And that is what frustrated me for years. And then during this period of time, like as a sort of backdrop to uh, what's happening in the identity theft department, your mother is also obsessively shopping for inexpensive jewelry. Right. So that started right after my grandpa died. So it'll be her father. And I would come home from school, you know, I'd get off the bus, come in the house, and she would be lying on the couch with the Home Shopping Network or QVC on, and she would buy what she called cheap, chunky jewelry. So it was costume jewelry, and she was ordering it from these two networks. And to hide the packages from Dad, she would make me go across the highway to get the mail. The family's mailbox is on the opposite side of the road from the house. This is a busy two-lane highway where the speed limit is 55, a steady whoosh of cars and trucks. Axton's 11 years old, and her mother makes her cross the highway to get the deliveries of costume jewelry from the mailbox. Yeah, Kat, I and mean, I am a little cat geek, and I love my cat. You know, instead of having childhood friends, I had cats as friends, and they would follow me everywhere. So, it, the, you know, there were cats that would try and follow me across the road, and I was afraid they were going to get hit. And she was asking you to collude with her, to be her partner in this 
obsessive shopping and hiding it from your dad. Right. And at the time, you know, even though 11 years old, I thought, well, this is a grief thing. This is mom coping with the fact that grandpa died. And at some point, it will stop. It didn't stop. No, it, it didn't for months. And I finally got to the point where I knew that it had been going on for too long and I knew that it was wrong. And I went out in the barn one night and told dad what mom was doing. And I don't know what was said, but the flow of packages of, quote, cheap, chunky jewelry stopped. By the time she graduates from high school, Axton is desperate to get away from the stultifying atmosphere of her parents' home. She goes off to Purdue University, which, though still in her home state, feels like a completely different universe, full of new and exciting possibilities. But during the first semester of her freshman year, she receives a notice from the bursar's office. Her tuition check has bounced. She is so certain that there must be some kind of mistake that she walks over to the bursar's office to get it straightened out. And that's a point in the conversation with the customer service representative um, that I was face-to-face with, and they were behind bars. I said, just show me a copy of the check. This isn't right. My mom wouldn't do this. And I said, no, my mom paid that bill. So let me come around in this little side room. And they brought out a copy of the check. And it was my mom's check. It was the same design, same bank, same contact information at the top. And the check was made out to Purdue for my tuition amount. But the handwriting had been changed. It was not mom's handwriting. A very smushed, small handwriting, and my mom's handwriting was big and really like loopy. <laughs> and it looked like someone had gotten a hold of my mom's checkbook and gotten hold of my tuition bill, which again, you know, bills are still being stolen out of my parents' mail, and had written a bad check to Purdue. Well, at that point, it got personal for me because this identity thief is now messing with my ability to go to college. And mom and dad came over to visit me a few days later, and I took the, the copy of the check, and I shoved it under mom's nose, and I said, whose handwriting is this? And they said, why would someone get a hold of your checks and take my tuition bill out of our mail and write a bad check to Purdue? What's the point in that, other than to just mess with me? So her explanation was that someone had mirrored her checking account for the purposes of money laundering. So you become an academic. You finish Purdue, you go to graduate school, and you become a researcher in identity theft. That's your field. Did that feel like a choice or a necessity, or was it that it permeated everything around you while you were growing up? Or was it your way of thinking, if I learn enough about this, and if I become expert enough, I will be able to solve this question. Oh, it was absolutely, I wanted to learn as much as I could to hopefully solve our case and help people as well, Um, you know, help other victims. Because I was frustrated with the lack of response from creditors and the credit reporting agencies and the police with regard to my case. Yeah, I went to the Indiana State Police once I found out I was a victim and thought, well, you know, there's a right 
agency to go to because they have jurisdiction over the whole state. You know, they can look at my parents' case, they can look at my case because the two are obviously related and somebody will be apprehended, but, you know, we're going to have justice. That didn't happen. I took a police report, gave me a copy of it, and said, I'll need to show this to creditors and good luck. At 19, I wanted light sirens and, if necessary, a hail of gunfire. That, you know, that's just the kind, the kind of response I'm looking for, and it, it just didn't happen. So, out of frustration with that and other interactions I had in trying to clear my identity, I thought, well, I gotta be part of the solution. And the way to be part of the solution is to study it. And that's what I did. And I, you know, along the way, I hope to solve my own case. And even after starting my first academic position, um, which would have been in 2011, I thought to myself, you know, 2013 is the year that will mark 20 years. And, oh, wouldn't it be great to solve the case in the 20th year? And in 2013, I was invited to speak at a national conference on identity theft out in Washington, D.C. And there were representatives there from the Department of Justice and the FBI and, you know, different federal agencies. But after my presentation, I went up and talked to them and said, would you have any interest in solving my case? He said, oh, your case is too old. The original documents have long been destroyed by banks and creditors. Your case will never be solved. That was on February 4th of 2013. I solved it on February 25th. How did it feel on that day to be told, oh, you're never going to solve this by people who were, you know, national and international experts? It didn't deter me. There was a part of me that never gave up hope that... You know, I was going to solve it. In your experience and in your research, you know, going to the authorities and trying to get them to do something and basically being told, well, you know, we don't have that much interest in this, really. Good luck. Was that par for the course for people then, and is it still par for the course for people now? Yes and yes, unfortunately. You know, oftentimes, victims don't get the help and support that they need from government agencies like the police, or if there's tax fraud involved, um, they don't get the support that they need from the IRS. And creditors and credit reporting agencies often don't get this, the level of support that victims need and deserve. We'll be back in a moment with more Family Secrets. I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes... I guess identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for, for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Uh, thank God for the limits. Every time I have like one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a, in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s... She looked like a million bucks. ...with zero qualifications... She had a Harvard plaque. ...tricks her way past a wall of lawyers and agents. She's got all of these Maseratis and Bentleys all in the driveway. Is it like a mansion? Yes, it's a mansion. ...that this queen of the con uses to scam some of the biggest names in professional sports out of untold fortunes about six million approximately 11 million dollars nearly 10 million dollars was all gone employing whatever means necessary to bleed her victims dry she would probably have sex with one of her clients hide your money in your old rich men because <laughs> she is on the prowl listen to queen of the con season five the athlete whisperer on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and I'm back for another season of my podcast, Climbing in Heels. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as fully obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. My podcast, Climbing in Heels, is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season, we're taking things up a notch. I'll be talking to some incredible women across so many industries, from models and beauty industry stars to doctors, entrepreneurs, and TV personalities. Climbing in Heels is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Every week, listeners will be able to ask me any questions. I'm answering it all. My life is absolutely crazy with so much going on, and I'm so beyond excited to bring you along for the ride. Whether we're talking red carpet looks, current trends, or products I'm obsessed with, I'm here to be your fashion fairy godmother. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. By now, early February of 2013, Axton's mother is very sick. She's been diagnosed with something called Burkitt's lymphoplastic leukemia, which wasn't caught until she was in stage four. So she's undergoing radiation, but there isn't much reason for optimism. Your break comes very shortly after your mother passes away. 13 days after she passes away, your dad calls you, and what happens? My dad called me to yell at me for a credit card statement that he had found in a file box of my mother's that was from 2001, and it was for a credit card that had been run over limit. And I said, Dad, I didn't run a credit card over limit. What are you talking about? 
yes, you can. I have a credit card statement right here in my hand. And I said, well, what credit card is it? And he said, well, First USA. And I said, Dad, First USA was one of the credit cards that was taken out in my name as part of the identity theft. Well, what's Mom doing with that? He said, well, I don't know, but it's in here in the file with your birth certificate. I knew right then. I knew right then. Because, number one, I had my birth certificate. And number two, there's no reason for my birth certificate and a credit card statement that was taken out as part of the identity theft to be in a file folder of mom's, unless she was the perpetrator. Axon first came on my radar when she sent me an early copy of her book with a personal note. In the note, she writes... So many people hear my story and ask me, how could she have done that, or how could you not have known? But the truth is that family members, spouses, children, parents, siblings, almost never know each other completely. In my family, there were just more secrets than usual to cover up. While I think it's true that we can never know each other completely, I also think that there are thoughts we don't entertain, places we just don't touch when it comes to those closest to us. That's what Family Secrets is all about. What was that moment like for you? So it was two opposite emotions pulling on me at the same time that I think canceled each other out into some weird state of numbness. So there's, you know, the one extreme emotion was triumph. Thinking of those folks that I met two weeks earlier at at the conference in Washington, D.C., who said this case would never be solved. I did it, you know. I accomplished the impossible. And then the other extreme emotion was, oh my God, it's mom. It's mom. She's responsible for how we've lived for the last 20 years. And she's dead. Right. So I can't hold her accountable. Well, I told dad what I thought it was, you know, that mom was the identity thief all along. He said, no, 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 no. There's got to be some other explanation for this. And of course, he was going through this outbuilding on our property where mom kept a lot of things and I told dad I said anything that you find that's financial that doesn't make sense set it aside and I'll look at it when I come back over spring break which should have been in two weeks and by the time spring break came and I went back to Indiana there's a workbench in this south building and he had a mountain of papers on this workbench of financial documents that were in my mother's possession that he just couldn't quite make sense of. This mountain of paper included letters from banks where Axton's mom had tried to establish checking accounts in both her name and Axton's dad in Wisconsin. There was a purchase agreement for a house in Delaware County, Indiana, not too far from where they lived, signed by everyone but her. There were pay stubs in her maiden name, documents related to a 401k that she cashed out. She had grown sloppy, Axton's mom. Instead of destroying the paper trail, she hid documents in random places, between the pages of books, in the bottom of old purses, in between dresser drawers. So Axton and her dad now go through the house like CSI technicians. They find credit card statements, collection agency statements in her grandfather's name. Axton's mom had stolen his identity as well. It's so interesting. Your mom knew that she was very ill and probably terminal. And 
You know, it's not like she died in an accident or of a heart attack and had no warning. So I wonder what went through her mind, because she could have cleaned all that up, I suppose, but she didn't. I think on some level she believed she was going to get better, because her doctors said that the six months of treatment will be really difficult, particularly near the end, which mom was diagnosed in August, and by this point, you know, it was February, but we're getting into the really rough part. I think because mom thought that once she got through March, she would turn the corner, I think she thought this is going to continue and that she wouldn't get caught. And then when she was put on hospice care, um, you know, that would have been an appropriate time to tell me and or dad at least something to the effect of you're going to find out bad things about me or, you know, hey, I'm in trouble with the IRS because that was another thing that mom did. She didn't pay the taxes for the majority of 13 years. The IRS is on the verge of seizing the house and we didn't know about until after mom died. When was the point that your dad accepted that this really was the case, that this really had been your mom all along? Was it when you came back from spring break and you went through all those papers together? Yes. And how would you characterize his his response to that realization? Defeat. It's one of those situations where you, know, you really, really, really want something to either be true or not be true, and then you find out the opposite of what you want, and then it takes the wind out of your sails. Axton finished college in three years. Partly this was to save money, but also because of the feeling that something was looming, chasing her. She needed to keep moving to stay ahead of it. Now, it's almost a decade later. She's an academic. Studying identity theft has become her professional life. And she's confronting the very thing that she didn't even know she was running from. Her mother has left a huge mess. Her mother had been, in the deepest sense, unknowable. Now it's Axton's job to sift through their shared history and understand as much as possible about who her mother had really been. So Axton goes where so many of us go when trying to figure somebody out. Facebook. She starts contacting people her mother had been Facebooking. She had over 4,000 private messages that were very detailed and entirely fictitious about various businesses and properties she owned. Axton goes to her mother's 40th high school class reunion in Ohio. She's looking for information about her mom, but the more she digs, the more elusive her mom becomes. She portrayed herself as a very different person to different groups of people. She had different versions of herself. In some versions, she was married and had a child. And other versions of herself, she was divorced, my dad had been beating her, and she had no kids. And she went by different names. Sometimes she went by her married name. Sometimes she went by her maiden name. Um, with her high school classmates, she went by her maiden name because you know, she was divorced because my dad was beating her. And, you know, so when I went to her 40th alumni banquet, I had the practice on the way there introducing myself as Pam Elliott's daughter because that's how these people knew her, as Pam Elliott. They didn't know her as Pam Elliott. Like diving head first into the deep end of a pool, I almost felt sleazy, you know, introducing myself as Pam Elliott's daughter because again, who's that? I mean, I didn't know, I didn't know Pam Elliott. Um, I know the Pam Elliott that 
we're all kinds of risque Facebook messages. But to understand who mom was, I had to dive into each of these worlds at first and just do a lot of listening and ask a lot of questions. And ultimately, through all of this, I do think my mom had a personality disorder. I do think, you know, I talk about psychopathy in the book, and in the DSM-5, um, psychopathy is not a clinical diagnosis, but rather psychopathy has been put under this larger umbrella of antisocial personality disorder. And lack of guilt is a core feature. Being motivated by power is another core feature of antisocial personality disorder, as well as pathological lying. Those are all things that mom did. It's interesting that when I asked you why you thought perhaps that she didn't confess or try to destroy all that evidence when it would have appeared to have been better for her to do so, that fits in with that as well, because if if she wasn't capable of feeling guilt, then she wouldn't have actually felt that she had done anything wrong. Right. And, you know, those with antisocial personality disorder, based on my armchair psychologist understanding, is that they know the difference between right and wrong. So they're not stupid, you know, by any stretch of the imagination. These are highly intelligent people who cognitively know the difference between right and wrong, but emotionally they don't care. So what's it like to come to the awareness, you know, you're well into your adult life. You have a successful career. You're married to your husband, Rob. You have stability in your life. What is it like to make the discovery that a parent was so incredibly unstable? I mean, it's one thing to grow up and know that you have an unstable or a mentally ill parent, but you found that out. It makes things make a lot more sense now. Um, for example, you know, when I was in junior high and high school, kids bullied me and I felt, you know, people treated me like crap. I thought it was because of me. I don't think it was all because of me now. I think a lot of it, you know, that's the way the small towns work. People judge you in part by who your parents are. I think there were people who didn't like mom, and they probably said that to you know their kid. And so, therefore, people in school didn't like me. You talk a little bit toward the end of your book about feeling empowered. A word that I use often is liberated, because when something finally makes sense, even if it's a really painful realization. I mean, no fun to make that diagnosis of, you know, your own mom. And yet it makes everything make sense. Right. This is something that comes up so often when a big family secret comes to light. So many people use these exact words. It makes everything make sense. And while the truth may be hard and painful and complicated, knowing it is liberating. Why? Because it's the truth. Because it's our truth. And who among us doesn't ultimately want to make sense of our lives? In her book, Axton uses a beautiful metaphor to describe the aftermath of trauma involving 
a litter of kittens born on their farm. When the kittens were born, we could tell by their faces they were going to be dark. We could tell we had a black one and then two tigers. But the rest of their fur was silver. And when a mama cat is stressed or they have an illness, the kittens can be born with what they call a fever coat. And so it's, it's, for whatever reason, the pigment doesn't get applied to the kitten's fur in utero, and they get this silver fur instead. And that silver fur eventually falls out, and then the real fur grows in. So, you know, these kittens eventually had one had black hair, and the other two were brown tigers. And so they look like perfectly normal, healthy kittens. It's like I've gotten rid of that fever coat. You know, that stress that mom put on me was kind of the fever coat. That paranoia, that hypervigilance, that was a fever coat that she, I guess, forced me to have. And now that she's gone, and now that I've discovered what I have about her, I've shed that fever coat. Many thanks to Axton Betts Hamilton. Axton is the author of The Less People Know About Us, a mystery of betrayal, family secrets, and stolen identity. You can find her on Twitter at Axton7. Family Secrets is an iHeartMedia production. Dylan Fagan is the supervising producer, and Julie Douglas and Beth Ann Macaluso are the executive producers. If you have a family secret you'd like to share, you can get in touch with us at listenermail at familysecretspodcast.com. You can also find us on Instagram at Danny Writer, Facebook at Family Secrets Pod, and Twitter at Fam Secrets Pod. For more about my book, Inheritance, visit dannyshapiro.com. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi. I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place 
for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s She looked like a million bucks Scams a bunch of famous athletes out of untold fortunes Nearly 10 million dollars was all gone It's just unbelievable Hide your money in your old rich men Because <laughs> she is on the prowl Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer On the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts